Hey, good morning. Welcome back for another Bible study. We're in the book of Galatians again. Uh, we're starting a new chapter, chapter 4, but the divisions that we have, you know, um, Paul and the authors of Scripture didn't say, okay, chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1, verse 2. The chapters and verses were added much, much later as a way of helping people reference what they were talking about. If you read the uh, if you read any ancient Christian authors, you'll see them quoting stuff all over the place without reference. And sometimes there'll be an asterisk or something like that that will, um, that will then t- give you the, the scripture reference. But they would just, they would just quote, quote whatever it was without uh, giving any reference because there were no numbers. Uh, so anyways, we're, we're starting in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. And um, by way of review... I'll try and keep it brief. <laughs> I feel like these reviews maybe are taking up too much time. But uh, just by way of review in the letter, for if anybody's tuning in for the first time, uh, the letter to the Galatians is a letter that Paul wrote to... It, it's hard to know whether it's one church or multiple churches because Galatia was not a city, it was a region. So Paul might have planted one church there. He might have planted multiple churches there. And, we're, and there's even debate about just exactly what this region is. So Paul writes this letter to the church or churches of Galatia, wherever that happens to be. It's likely in Asia Minor because we know that's where Paul's journeys had taken him up to this point. So uh, Paul writes a letter to the churches of Galatia. And the occasion, the reason why he writes this letter is because he had, um, he had heard rumors that some people had followed him, had come behind him after he had left those churches, and they had brought a new teaching, a different teaching than what Paul had, uh, had given to them. And this teaching came from Jerusalem, from some pretty ardent and zealous Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but were equally as ardent about the keeping of Torah and that Gentiles should essentially become Jewish in order to accept the Jewish Messiah. That is, what they thought was that Jesus was only a Jewish Messiah. So in order for him to become my Messiah, your Messiah, For someone who was not already Jewish, you had to become Jewish in order for his um, saving work, uh, for uh, for him to actually be your Messiah, for him to redeem you, to be ruler, for you to be under his umbrella of authority um, and protection, you had to become Jewish, which meant following the Jewish law and customs. So... You can see, maybe in, in the way I'm explaining it here, why Paul would be so upset. Because what you're doing is you're actually changing the nature of God and the Word of God. Because Paul realized that Jesus was not the Messiah of the Jews only, but of the entire world. And so the way that people would come to Christ 
was no longer through becoming Jewish because salvation was for them right where they were. In fact, because Paul had been a Jew among Jews, he was the best Jew you could come by, and he was still God's enemy. Yet God still loved him and showed grace to him. Paul realized that, you know, other people who are God's enemies too, who aren't keeping the law, God's grace extends to them already right where they are, right there in their sin, in their rebellion, and uh, in being adversarial towards him. It isn't their keeping of the law that's going to provoke a response in God on their behalf. Rather, God has already actively been proactive in reaching out towards them. It is they that respond to him, not the other way around. So when Paul hears about this, uh, he, he writes off this letter, and it's a fiery letter. He says some uh, he, he, we haven't even gotten to the stuff where he really lays into these, uh, these people he calls the circumcision party. So that's the occasion. That's why Paul writes the letter. He begins with, with a defense of who he is because he'd been slandered by this crew. They had said, oh, well, well Paul left a bunch of things out because he was trying to be a, a good evangelist. He was trying to be um, seeker-sensitive, you might say, in, in modern parlance. They would have said, oh, Paul was just being seeker-sensitive. He was going easy on you so that you would come, so that you'd come be a part. And, uh, and so Paul has to defend himself. Um, another criticism they had was that Paul was not a real apostle, but they were. They had come from the real apostles there in, in Jerusalem. So Paul has to defend himself first by saying, I am a true apostle. I learned from Jesus himself. That's what it means in, in the specific title of apostle. The word apostle just means someone who's sent. So anybody who's sent by, by any church would, would be an apostle in that sense. But there's a maybe capital A apostle, an office of apostle that was reserved for those who had learned specifically from Jesus himself. And I think it means specifically Jesus after his resurrection, which of course was the 11, was the 11 originals, um, but also Paul. So he was a true apostle, is the beginning of his argument. And then he says, you know what, when I went to the other apostles, because Jesus told me to, they didn't tell me that I had left anything out of the gospel, like these other people are claiming. And then Paul goes on to say how, you know, he actually confronted other, other apostles where they were in error. And apparently they accepted that uh, confrontation. So it's not as though Paul is like, um, you know, on, at the bottom, you know, maybe he's an apostle, but he's at the bottom. He, has, he submits to the other apostles and their teaching is better than his. No, he's, he's got the same teaching as they do. And they listen to him just as much as he listens to them. So then Paul gives out, brings up his thesis in chapter 2, which is essentially that because we, we know there's something wrong with us. We know that we're not okay. Have you realized that? We know we're not okay in one degree or another. And that feeling of being ill at ease in ourself and in the world 
is what drives us to do what we do. So it, it, it drives us to achieve things. It, it, it drives us to, into relationship. Because we know that we're not whole. We, we have a whole, you know, W-H-O-L-E. We have a whole, H-O-L-E. We have a whole, and we try and fill that with things. And that can go everything from relationships to achievements to full-blown addictions, pleasures. And that can go, that can be mountain climbing, that can be booze. It can be making a bunch of money. There are a lot of different things that we can use to fill that. But that sense in which we are not right, things are not right in ourselves and in the world, that is due to the fact that we are not right with God. That is, we are not justified. We are not right in God's eyes. And the question is, is there any hope for us to be right with God? And the answer is yes. There is hope that all that yearning, that longing, that hole in you could be filled. And not just filled up top, but could become a fountain that overflows into all of your life. That's essentially the gospel. And the question that Paul is getting at is that filling... That sense of wholeness, that being right with God and yourself and the world around you. Does that come through your efforts? Like, does that come, does that come through Jesus? What he's done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in what the Spirit does in us right now? Does it come purely by that? Has, has Jesus' life, death, and resurrection given us access to God, direct access to God, so that His Spirit might come into us? Or has Jesus done some of the work, but then now it's on us to do some things, or else God's still going to stay at a distance? Will God still stay at a distance? Will we still have that, that sense of lack? Unless we start filling our lives with other things, did God fill it like partially and then we got to fill it the rest of the way by doing good things, by following Torah specifically? So his thesis is it is Jesus alone in his, in his faith in Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. That is what makes us justified, which, what makes us right with God. That is what gives us access so that the Holy Spirit can actually come into, his, in, into our lives. The Holy Spirit himself, God personally, can apply that work of Christ to our life and begin to fill that up in spite of anything we do or do not do. There are no conditions There isn't an extra work that we have to do. That's Paul's thesis. And his first line of argument, well, I mean, I guess the first line of argument would be, hey, you know, if there was more to do, then you're actually saying that Jesus didn't do enough. You're saying God actually couldn't do this. God needs our help to accomplish it. That's essentially his first line of argument at the end of chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, he he gives another, another argument. He says, look, you heard 
the gospel preached to you and you received it. You received the Holy Spirit. You even saw miracles. And you were not keeping Torah. You were not following some law. You weren't keeping some rules that God then recognized and then offered his spirit to you. Then showed up because he saw how well behaved you were. How well you did whatever it was that he was requiring. No, you know from your own experience that it was in spite of yourselves that the Lord came to you through the hearing of the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ. And then he continues and argues again by saying, hey, look, if it was the other way around, if you want to go the other way around and you want to to work for it, then the trouble with that is that you're going to have to do the entire thing. It's not a little bit God, a little bit you. It's either all God or all you. That's how it works. And good luck with the all you. If you're going to go with the all me version, then you are under a curse. The law becomes a curse to you because you will never, ever be able to fulfill it. But the good news is, That Jesus came and fulfilled that law. He did all that on your behalf. He even took on that curse. For you was killed by it. In order to redeem you from that. Okay, that's the next argument. Then last time. He has another argument that we we are again continuing. And that is. They had their experience of, of God previous to the law. And then he, he goes to Abraham and says, hey, Abraham was approached by God when, when there was no Torah. And God made a promise to Abraham that he would bless Abraham in these ways, that, that the Christ would come through his seed, through, through Abraham's offspring, would come the one through whom we would be saved. And that was by faith in the promise. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's what it says. It was simply belief in that promise. If it's through the law, if it's through these conditions that came after Abraham's lifetime, then it's not even possible for Abraham to have done it. It makes it so that you have to keep the law in order to earn the promise, not simply you get the promise because it's been promised to you without condition. So, after these lines of argument, the question then becomes, well, why, why did the law ever appear? Why did the law ever appear? And Paul gives two answers to that. He says, one, because of transgression, because we do bad stuff. I think he has in mind here Exodus 32. You know, God gives the law, and the, they immediately break the first couple commandments by making the golden calf. They have another God. They make a graven image, which is... Uh, which is part of the, um, the Ten Commandments. So uh, we need this to show us where we are in error, to show us that we are lawbreakers, that the gap between God and ourselves is not something he has made, but something we have made. And then the second, uh, the second reason for the law is he says the, the law was our instructor, was a, was a guardian, was like a parent who has to put limits around children to protect them from themselves until they reach maturity. 
Now, the point of all those limits in, in the guardianship is neither to oppress the children nor to give them a way to, uh, to claw their way out. The purpose is to protect them, to show them the right way to go so that eventually they will do what is right without the rules even being there. Without the rules being there. Eventually they're going to grow into maturity and they're not going to need those rules anymore. So here Paul is continuing in that line of argument. And he's going to use, he's going to use the family metaphor most specifically here. Okay, chapter one, or, or sorry, chapter four, verse one. Paul says this. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we're going to end right there. You can see how this connects to the passage before, which had ended, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here's how he gets into the the um, being an heir, being a child. But he begins by saying, by contrasting uh, the difference between a, a, a child and a slave. Now, in, in, their, in the ancient world, slavery was normal. We, we have an abhorrence to it, rightly so. It was a, it, uh, when I say it was normal, I'm not saying it was good. I'm just saying it, nobody thought otherwise. Nobody thought anything was awry um, when, there were, when there were slaves. And in that world, very often, <clears throat> um, a, a, a slave would be under, is under the authority of the master and has to follow their rules and has to do what they say. But a child, you know, a slave could be an adult. Um, but the, the heir, the children of the, of the head of the house are also under rules and they have to do what what the parent says. So in that sense, there's no difference between the two. Neither of them have the freedom to just do whatever they want. That's what Paul's getting at. But there's a, there's a big difference. The child, you know, the, the slave is not, going to, is not going to own the property when the parent leaves. The child is. So there's a difference in, there's a major difference in status in what they have and what is promised to them, even while the conditions that they currently live under are the same. That's what he's getting at when he says there's no difference between the child and the slave. And what he means is under the law, under the guardian, right? You have to follow the rules. You have, to do them, you have to do them exactly if you're going to be under the law. So both of you are, in essence, 
under a form of slavery. The difference is that eventually the child will mature and receive the inheritance that's been promised to them. What about the slave? Do they get an inheritance? Okay, let's keep reading. In verse uh, 3, it says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what does this mean? This is, um, <laughs> I don't know what this means. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I looked, I have a running commentary here in my Bible, probably R.C. Sproul. Uh, he says this, The Greek phrase refers to the basic elements that make up the world in ancient thought. These were earth, wind, water, and fire. Sometimes these elements were revered as deities governing the universe. Here Paul may be thinking especially of the sacred calendar of the law. Its seasons determined by the heavenly bodies. Legalism subjected subjected life to the control of the structures of the world. So the, the point is, regardless of what exactly is meant by being, uh, being subjected, uh, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, whatever those elementary principles happen to be, the whole point is that these are ruling over you. And that's what Torah does. It rules over you. And he says, when we were children... Referring to Jews. Jews were, were God's children, but they could not inherit the promise. They were under law. Okay? So uh, he, he's referring to, probably, if, if we can believe the commentary, the ceremonial law here. In verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, you would think that this is like when the child reaches maturity and the, and the parent is going to give them the estate, the inheritance. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was Jewish. He's acknowledging this, born of a woman. He was human. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, two things. Back up here. God sent, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law. Let's just take a minute and say, God's own son, the eternal, ineffable God was born of a woman became truly, truly human. That is astounding. This would blow everyone's categories, Greek or Jew. It should blow ours. Has your heart become dull to the amazing reality of this? You know, the church struggled with just how to understand this. This was the argument in the church for about the first 500 years. How do we understand God becoming human? For us, the trouble is how can a human be God? For them, the trouble was how can God be human? So Paul is really dropping a bomb here. 
We can have more discussion about that later. I just want to pause and say, wow, that is amazing. God sent forth his own son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law, he says. And this is a reference back to um, earlier in chapter 3 where he said that Jesus took on the curse for us. He was born under the law. He fulfilled the law, became the curse for us. So sent forth the son, born of woman, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. So to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now this is, this is amazing what he's saying. To redeem those under the law. Do sons need to be redeemed? Do children need to be redeemed? Well, no, not in their world. It's the slave that needs to be redeemed. You see, in, in the ancient world, if someone did not have an heir, sometimes people had children. And, but their children died before they reached maturity, before it could, could be passed, the estate could be passed on to them. And very often this would happen... Uh, when this happened, if there was no, no, other, no other child who was an heir, it would, the estate would then be passed on to a slave who was redeemed and adopted by the parent. So Paul is using a metaphor of something they would have all understood in their time. And for the Gentiles especially, they would have been seen as the slaves who had no inheritance. The Jews would have liked this metaphor of saying, yeah, we are the children, we have the inheritance, they are the slaves. But Paul is saying, no, they are co-heirs with you because we are redeemed and we are adopted as sons. In fact, the children, the children of the heir, also need to come out from under that instruction in order to receive the inheritance. Because the children are enslaved, remember Paul's argument, the children are enslaved just as much as the slaves are. Now, I've, I've left aside purposefully the, a, moral, a moral aspect here. It's not as though the children are morally righteous so that they don't need to be redeemed. That's not what I'm saying. When it comes to morality, everyone, Jew and Gentile, we need to be redeemed. Our own sin has forced that gap between God and us, has put us into the realm of slavery, and we need to be redeemed by Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So, I'm not saying that those who are Jews um, just simply need to be out from under the law, but they don't need their sins to be forgiven. They don't need to be redeemed. They certainly do. This, every metaphor has limits. The metaphor for Paul, though, what is amazing here, is that he is saying, whether it is by, uh, by nature or by adoption, whether you're, you're in God's family through the covenant, through biology, biologically tracking yourself back to Abraham, or through faith, 
is what he had said earlier in chapter 3. We are Abraham's children through faith. We are adopted into God's family and are no longer under that slavery. No longer under slavery for him particularly, for Paul in this moment, slavery to the law for the Jewish Torah, the elementary principles of this world. He might be saying that if if R.C. Sproul is right here. He might be saying that because he's saying, look, for Jews we had Torah that was our form of slavery that was a sort of guardianship for us until the time of Christ should come when we would be redeemed out of that. But for the Gentiles, they were enslaved to the worshiping of the elements. They were enslaved. They had their own form of law that they lived under and they labored under to try and make themselves right with God or the gods. And now they've been redeemed from that slavery and adopted into God's family. Either way, wherever you're coming from, you're now adopted into God's family. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. One, uh, one thing to just get out of the way before I really get into the text is some, some people might be tri- tripped up on the fact that Paul keeps saying sons rather than like sons and daughters or daughters or something like that, like that this is, um, he's specifically referring to sons. So, uh, Many people would say this is very sexist language. Christianity is a sexist religion. You got to understand the world that Paul lived in and the context into which he lived. In that world, only sons were inheritors of the estate. Daughters were married into other families. And so they, they received the inheritance of who, whomever they married. So the, in, order, in, in order to keep the idea and the metaphor of actually receiving the inheritance, Paul, Paul says sons. Paul describes sons. Now, if that's still offensive to you, that's okay. You can still be offended by that. Uh, it's, it's probably especially women who are going to be offended by this. But you know what? The church is called the bride of Christ. You know, so, so us guys have to deal with like being with this feminine imagery too. Um, so don't get too, don't get too hung up by the, by the gender specific language that's going on here. And, and here it is gender specific. Sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, in the ancient world, the world anthropos is actually a word for man, but it's like how it used to be used here. Well, it's still often used that way, but it used to be always understood that the word man could be collective or it could be singular. It could be referring to all human beings or it could be referring specifically to this, this specific sex among human beings. So here, though, it's not, it's, it's not saying referring to all humanity. Um, it is referring specifically to sons. So just want to get that out of the way if there's anybody who's, who's offended by that. Um, what Paul is getting at is that uh, being adopted as a son means you have full access to everything that the everything that the parent has is going to now belong to you. That's how they would have understood being adopted 
as sons, especially as slaves. The whole point of adopting a slave was to pass on the estate to someone who was worthy of it. I'm pausing purposefully there. What is it that makes one worthy of it? Worthy of receiving of, of receiving the inheritance. According to Paul, this is why it's important that he says that God sent his son to redeem those who are under the law. It wasn't them proving their own worth. Those who were under the law, none of them were actually able to prove their worth to God. They still had to be redeemed. It is Christ's worth. It is Christ himself, what he has done. His work and his being united to you through the Holy Spirit that makes us worthy. That gives us that worth. But it's more than that. It's more than being worthy to be adopted so that you can inherit the, the estate. God isn't just looking for heirs. He's looking for a relationship. You notice how he says, and because you are sons, God has sent his spirit. Once again, here it's the spirit of his son, the spirit of Jesus. Notice the Trinitarian language. The father has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There you go. Father, Son, and Spirit. God himself is relational. And he plants the Spirit of his Son into our hearts so that we cry out to him in relationship, so that we are adopted, so that we can say, Abba, Father. Abba is the, is the Aramaic word. It probably means something like Daddy. It's what kids would say. Abba, Abba. So that we could be like little kids that say, Daddy, Daddy. It denotes a level of excitement, a level of intimacy. You know, your kids grow up. My kids aren't old enough for this, but I know the day's going to come. When I come home, and there won't be, you know, Trinity now, anytime the, the door opens, she goes, ta ta. Or she goes, da-da, da-da, da-da. And then she comes over to me. There will come a time when, you know, that won't be the case, I know. But this is the idea. We can now be those little ones. Go, da-da, da-da. It denotes intimacy. Yes, we are heirs, and Paul uses that language quite a bit here. Heirs of what? All that God has. All that he has.
And that means the entire universe. You know, God made one way of looking at why God created the universe is because his love was so overflowing. The love between the Father and the Son communicated through the Holy Spirit was just bursting forth that they said, my goodness, why don't we make something to enjoy this? This is too much to just keep to ourselves. And so God created the heavens and the earth. And the purpose of creation was always that that creation would be directed back towards him, that the creation would be a gift that the Father gives to his Son to rule over and to enjoy all of creation. And we, as his children, inherit that gift that was given to his Son. The metaphor here is adoption and inheritance. We receive it by adoption and inheritance. But in other places, Paul uses the language of marriage. We are the bride of Christ, the church. And so we inherit what Christ has through marriage. Either way, do you notice the intimacy of the metaphors being used? Because it isn't just like, hey, you get to rule the planet. You know, maybe you can finally get your cabin on the beach or something like that. But the great inheritance is God himself. This God who is just overflowing with love and joy. God has made everything to come back to him. You know, the, the term is used, he's, everything is for the glory of God. And in our day, sometimes that's abused because we think, wow, what a megalomania. God's made everything for himself. How selfish. He just wants things to bow down and worship him. Man, how egotistical. But that's not what it means. The word glory actually means to go forth, to go out. It's like the sun. The sun is a mass in space, so it has this sort of law of attraction. It's attracted planets and, and uh, asteroids and things in our solar system to it to, to orbit around it. But it has also attracted them because it's bursting forth with energy and light and heat that gives life. That's how God's glory is. It's bursting forth. It's going out. It's constantly giving, pouring forth, providing light, providing warmth, giving out and going out. And yes, it's also magnetic. Who doesn't want to draw near if that's how it is? You know, here in Portland, when we get a ray of sunshine, you know, there was, a, there was an episode of, Portlandia once where there was one pocket of of sunshine that burst through a cloud once and that you had a whole crowd of people like vying for position in this one spot of sunlight. But unlike the sun, if you get too close, it'll burn you up. That's actually how it would be because of our sin. Our sin 
removes any level of protection we would have from getting near to God. It'd like be, it, it, it would be like being on Mars where there's no atmosphere. You just be consumed by God's glory. All that glory and goodness pouring forth would just consume you. But Jesus Christ and his redemption is like the atmosphere around the earth that keeps us from being burned up. It keeps things just right. But it's way better than that. It'd be more like having, a, having something in you that protects you from the sun. Having the sun inside of you. You know, the sun doesn't, doesn't need protection from itself. Having something sunish inside of you so that you could go all the way into the center of it. You could enjoy that heat and that light and it wouldn't overwhelm you. It wouldn't consume you. You can just sit there right in the center and enjoy that warm and coziness. God's love, God's joy, God's delight. Every moment that you've ever had of enjoyment and pleasure in this life, you've gotten a taste. You've brushed up against God without Him letting you know that it was Him. That's what it'll be like forever and ever and ever for those who are adopted as His sons, those who have been redeemed, can curl up in the center of his joy and love and grace and enjoy it forever. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, second question, says, what is the chief end of man or mankind, if you prefer the language, human beings, what is our chief end? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him for, forever. You know how we glorify God? By enjoying Him forever. By recognizing, wow, isn't it amazing how great this God is? Now you've glorified Him. It's reflect once again, the glory is the, is the light pouring forth. It's an outgoing thing. The, our chief end is to become like God and bursting forth with joy and energy and light, reflecting his light back to him and enjoying him giving it to us. Do you want that? If you've never met Jesus, you should want that. Everybody should be wanting this. I understand uh, if you look at Christians and you look at the church and you look at history and you're like, I don't want it. But when you hear something like this, how do you not want it? How do you not want this? Come to Jesus today. Whether you've never met him, whether you've known him for a long time and you've forgotten this glorious vision of who he is and what he's brought us into, come to him right now. Man, why labor under law? Why are you striving? Why strive to fill that hole in you? It's right here. He's here to give it to you for free. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to claw your way into it and just come directly to him and say, I, I believe that you have this for me. Let me receive it.